progress, he writes, means getting nearer the place you want to be. And if you've taken a wrong turning, then going forward does not get you any nearer. And if you are on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Freedom Feature. And I'm your host, Barry Bussey. With me today, I have a historian, author, uh, university teacher, Curtis McManus, who has written a book, The Age of Nihilism, and it's subtitled An Inquiry into the Death of Western Democracy or the Consequences mm. of Philosophy. Thank you so much, Curtis, for being with us. Thanks, Barry. It's been a pleasure to be here. So tell me, what is the age of nihilism that you are making reference here today? It's the age, I argue, it's the age that we're living in right now. And as you go through, I, of course, make an argument for a book here, nihilism. And nihilism is a slippery philosophical concept, but I use a, a definition from Albert Camus, Friedrich Nietzsche, and philosopher Stanley Rosen. I use their working definitions of what nihilism is. And we live in the age of nihilism. And I hope in you know 150 years, when the history when the history of the West is written in 150 years, they will probably title the book something like this. It seems pretty obvious to me. It seems readily obvious and apparent that we are living in the age of nihilism. It seems just plainly obvious to me. It seemed just plainly obvious to me. So when we think of nihilism, and you have here the definition of nihilism, or at least, you know, a working definition, I'm just looking at it here. The idea, I guess, basically, you say it's not a philosophy in and of itself, and neither yeah. is it an internally coherent body of thought. It's more like an attitude. It's a state of mind. You make mention to the definition of nihilism as the doctrine that nothing exists or can be known, also the rejection of religious and moral creeds, a political doctrine holding that the existing structure of society should be destroyed. So, you know, we're looking at something that is refusing the existence of truth on the basis that it is entirely beyond capacity to apprehend truth. So obviously, you know, it's something that is very hostile toward religious communities mm -hmm. or religion and morality. It wants to destroy society. Yes. My, I, you know, as I was, as I was reading this, I, I mean, it, mm -hmm. it just struck me that, that we're living yeah. right in it right now. Like, I mean, yeah. we are partakers of this drama yes. that's unfolding as, as people are seeking to destroy the institutions yeah the framework of thought even help us out here that you know where do where do you see nihilism and what are your concerns here yeah the, the concerns are i you know i of course have many concerns because nihilism will manifest itself in many 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 different ways right you highlighted the basic definition which sort of gives people you know a bearing on where it is that we're going here the definition that you just read Albert Camus is a French philosopher, and his definition of nihilism is a refusal to accept what is, right? Mm. It's a refusal to accept reality as it is offered. Now, how does that, that idea, that refusal, 
express itself in modern 21st century social and political life in the West, that comes in our inability to accept with, that a man born a man is in fact a man. Men are refusing to accept what is. They're refusing basic biological reality, and they want to be, become women, right? And so mm -hmm. that the gender movement, the ideological ideological gender movement, is sort of built up on nihilistic thought, which is again, according to Albert Camus, a refusal to accept what is. So that's the most obvious example that strikes me. When I look at the definitions of nihilism, toward the end of the definition that you read, Barry, that there's a mm. real, real important component part to the definition of nihilism, the desire to destroy society, right? To, yes. to wreck it, to bring it, burn it down and replace it with something new. That attitude is sort of ubiquitous. It's everywhere. Right? It's sort of the ambient air that we breathe. This idea that we live in a culture or a society that is shot through with so many bad things, racism, homophobia, uh, transphobia, sexism, all the rest of it, right? It is so rotten that we must discard everything, including the national anthem. We'll get rid of that too, right? And the statues to our uh, statues honoring our great politicians or our war heroes or our heritage, right? We'll get rid of those too, because those represent a past that, you know, we're embarrassed about. We don't, we don't want to think about that anymore. The nihilistic attitude is sort of everywhere that we look. If you, you know, I go through my Twitter feed in the morning and I just, oh dear, you know, <laughs> I see it everywhere, right? Once you see it, you can't unsee it, right? And so progressives, they call themselves progressives, but they're not progressives. They are, in fact, nihilists, and they are likely not aware of that, which is unfortunate. It's a very dark yes. mindset. It's, yeah, it is. you know, very destructive. I think there are a couple of years ago when we had this rash of church burnings throughout yeah. Canada. Some yeah. 68 yeah. churches were yeah. either vandalized or burned to the ground. And even just recently, I I noticed on the news, another church has been burned to the ground. It's like the anti-religious, anti-moral aspect of nihilism is something yeah. that's running rampant right now, yes. where a lot of intellectuals, a lot of professions, <clears throat> are uh, certainly in the legal profession we are seeing one would hate to say anti-religious but it sure feels like that for anyone who's of a religious bent or more conservative religious bent there there is this animosity there we we, we recently here in ontario went through an election for the benchers part of the debate going on at that time was trying to stop the law society from getting involved in political ideological commitments rather than yeah. just regulating the profession making sure that lawyers are competent to practice law and back in 2019 there was a slate of lawyers who were elected, 22 of them out of the 45 or so were elected to bring a more uh, traditional approach back to the law society. Anyhow, uh, at that time, a number of people were very angry with this conservative group because they said, oh, you know, this is just bringing in all kinds of religious fanatics into the law society and all of that kind of stuff. And so then the 
opposition against the conservative group was such uh, that they won the majority, well, more than the majority, but they pretty much did the whole slate over the last couple of weeks. They, out of the 45 seats, they got all 45. That was the so-called governance coalition. But anyhow, my point is that there is this anti-religious sense, even though those benchers, a number of them were not even religious. It's like using the religion as a kind of stick to say, okay, well, we shouldn't be voting for this person because they support a conservative view, which is very religious and so forth. And so that the religious becomes like a stereotype to use to knock down your opponent, a rhetorical tool in that regard. You know, all of society seems to be caught up in this nihilistic attitude at the moment. I make the point in the book, I, I put a finer point on the nihilism that I'm looking at. And I categorize it as revolutionary nihilism, right? And again, I am framing, this goes back to that culture war business. Do we call it, is is it a culture war? No, it's a revolution, right? It's a cultural revolution, okay? And I understand it as such. And when you understand it as a a cultural revolution, what you're talking about there, Barry, that very thing starts to make a little bit more sense. Because beginning in 1789 with the Jacobins in the, during the French Revolution, the hostility, the naked hostility toward religion, the destruction of churches, that was a part of the revolution. They wanted to de-Christianize, such an ugly phrase. The revolutionaries wanted to de-Christianize France. And, you know, they, they burned and destroyed churches. They burned Bibles intransigently hostile to religion. And that's been the pattern before every revolution that has occurred since 1789, a naked hostility toward religion. Revolutionary nihilism, I don't know why it's so rabid, foaming at the mouth hatred, right? We see some evidence of that today. During the Bolshevik Revolution, the same thing happened, French Revolution, the destruction of churches, the murder of nuns and priests. My goodness, the Jacobins during the French Revolution, they turned that into an obscenity, the murder and killing of nuns and priests. So revolutionary nihilism has always hated religion because it sort of represents everything that nihilism is not. And, you know, we live in a very irreligious age, and I'm familiar with the, the church burnings that you speak of. Again, to me, it simply makes sense. This book is, as I say, it's diagnostic. It's not prescriptive. It simply tries to come to terms with the age that we're living in right now. I'm trying to make sense out of what's going on outside. There are so many things. You're making sense of the insensible. You talk about the ubiquitous delusion. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, uh, ubiquitous delusion is uh, the second chapter, I believe, in nihilism. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at progressivism, the ideology, and what progress actually means. And so I go in the book, I go through some of their delusions. And one of the delusions that I talk about is this progressive belief in the ascendatory arc of history, that we are moving toward a goal, okay? Because everything, almost everything that a progressive says, does, or thinks is animated by this belief they have 
that they are making the world a better place that tearing down like burning churches and tearing down statues of Sir John A. Macdonald, like those are necessary preconditions to create this better world that, that lay off in the distance. Everything that progressives do is designed to move us toward that final, final goal, the end of history. I call it the ubiquitous delusion because it's a delusion that so many people, often without even thinking about it, so many people who wouldn't even identify as being progressive, they hold you know, an idea or an understanding of history much similar to what progressives do, that is directional, that we are moving towards something. And you know, I just, I, I pour cold water on that idea in this chapter. Because it's just not true that, you know, anything good can come out of revolutionary nihilism. Nothing, poisoned ground will bear poisoned fruit, right? There is no good waiting for us at the end of that road. There is no end of history. Never has been, never will be. But yet so many people unconsciously think that way. It almost reminds me, they have taken, in essence, in the Bible itself, of course, it has this idea there will be an end of history in in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, or in French, it's the apocalypse, where, uh, you know, there is an end of history in the sense that uh, God comes back and and creates the perfect world. And and it seems like in some way, there's kind of like a denial of this religious idea, or at least a co-opting of the religious idea and then man is going to create the perfect world not god and i think that seems to be the problem here like i mean if you allow god to do it well then we don't have to worry about it he's going to do it in his own time but no man seems to say okay well we're going to create the perfect world it never seems to materialize though right right tried many 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 times and there's been many many efforts undertaken that regard. But you absolutely right, Barry. Secularists, they have taken that idea from Christianity that history is directional. They have d- nakedly borrowed from Christianity that idea. That's where they get it from. And there's this idea that, that yeah, as you say, man is going to create um, this, this heaven on earth. And I have yet to see evidence of it. I, again, we, we, we come back to the utopian scene. It's never materialized. We've tried, but it's never materialized. If we can do it, you think we we would have done it? Well, there's been all kinds of dictators that have tried to create that yeah, perfect sure. world, whether it was Julius Caesar or Augustus yeah. or even Nero himself wanting to make the perfect Rome. You know, yeah. they created horrible atrocities, uh, even the dictators of the 20th century. But... Um, Tell us about the cycles of history. What is it about the cycles of history that helps us to explain the times in which we live? It's a really old idea. One of its earliest expressions is found in Plato. Then we see it again in Aristotle in his politics. And we see this idea of the cycles of history again in the work of Greco-Roman historian Polybius. It's a simple idea that history will repeat uh, for a time, we'll, we'll have democracy, and then democracy will grow rotten over time. You know, we'll go from democracy into, say, a monarchy, for example, then into an autocracy or something like that, right? 
But, it, you know, every social and political order is subject to rise and fall dynamic. It, it, it's born and then it will, it, will rot, it will grow rotten and then it will perish and be replaced with something else. Now, what that mm -hmm. something else is looming in front of us, I wouldn't want to hazard a guess. But mm -hmm. to me, it seems that our democracy right, right across the Western world, every democracy has is growing rotten somehow. It's no longer functioning as a democracy. I mean, you know, what we're learning in our schools, for example, how many people actually vote what their kids are being taught in school? I mean, yes, we live in a democracy. We vote for the leaders who will lead us every four years. There's more to democracy than just the vote. A democratic culture is a free culture, a culture of liberty. And can freedom and liberty be stretched to a point where, you know, it starts to break, right? Mm. Have we stretched the principles of democracy, like liberty and freedom? Have we stretched those principles to the breaking point yet? Because we, we're, I think we're trying really hard. Um, and it's just, um, you know, I talked about it in, uh, in the chapter on the cycles of history that, you mm -hmm. know, um, th the idea of, of the cycles of history is a nice alternative to the, the progressive idea that history is directional, that it has a goal. If you don't accept that idea, and I don't personally, then what is history, right? If, if it doesn't have a goal, if it's not going anywhere, then what is it? Is it just random and chaotic? Chaotic? No, no. History doesn't show that. So maybe it's cyclical, right? Maybe things come and then things go, right? Uh, we mm -hmm. see kingdoms come and kingdoms go, and empires come and empires go, right? It's you know, mm -hmm. there's no set time limit in any of this. But democracies, right? Ancient, the first democracies. In ancient Greece, ancient Rome, they came, then they went. The idea here is that there's nothing permanent about what we're living in right now, right? There's nothing mm. that says what we have is perfect and it will last this way forever, right? There is nothing saying that. And I'm just, mm. you know, offering the idea of the cycles of history as an alternative way of looking at history, a different way of, a different way of looking at history. Right. And I think it's a reality that a lot of people I mean, are not paying attention to yeah. because it would seem to me that it'd be extremely important for us to recognize the cycles of history that, sure. as you point out, kingdoms come, kingdoms go. Therefore, sure. we need to be very mindful that the time mm -hmm. in which we live, we can't sure. take for granted. Like, so the freedom we have, the ability to be able to go to the store and pick up what we want, this is abnormal like i mean our experience we we've had over the last couple of hundred years is really unique to our yeah. time and it's been a great ride when you think about it i mean uh, the amount of wealth the conveniences the health uh, all of the uh, amenities that we've been having over the last while is unusual uh, to yeah. this degree. I mean, there's been the rich have had it over the years. You know, the various royalty have had it probably not even as good as what we have it now. The poorest person today living in Canada, for example, or like, you know, those who yeah. uh, the government would deem to be poor. Uh, yeah. Even even then, we have had a tremendous amount of blessing. Yes. 
and the ability to be able to go to a store, to be able to go to, uh, you know, any yeah. number of things and, and have all of the entertainment. So we've been a very, very blessed society. But if we think, okay, well, this is just like we're entitled to it. No, there's a history would tell us, and, and you can help me as the historian, yeah. but it seems to me that history would tell us that, hey, you know what? If you want to be able to keep this, uh, then you better look at the reasons why you have it to begin with. And that requires an understanding and knowledge of history itself. Yeah, def definitely. And yeah, you're absolutely right about the age in which we live. I'm extremely grateful that I get to sleep in a warm bed tonight with a full stomach. Not everyone can do that on this planet, right? And so I'm grateful for the country in, in which I grew up, in which I was born, right? But I do know that everything is, history shows us, everything is fleeting, right? This is not a permanent thing, that we can take things too far. There need to be restrictions on, you know, the length to which we take the insanity concerning gender, whether or not men can become women. I keep coming back to that because front of mind for me today, I just finished watching Matt Walsh's documentary, What is a Woman? And what horrified what I saw. That freedom, the, the freedom to choose your gender, that's unique in history also. I don't know of any other culture where in story history in which a man could claim that he was a woman or a woman claim she's a man and that people would take that seriously. I, I you know, we, we live in a very special and particular age right now. I wonder sometimes if current development could only occur in a very wealthy society uh, yeah. because historically we're all about just trying to survive. And yeah. now we're talking about you know, things that's beyond survival. It's, I don't know. I don't have the answer to that, but it just, that's a good segue into the whole nature of the human being. And I think that's extremely yeah. important, which the nihilists reject, yes. right? Yeah. The simple definition of nihilism, they claim that nothing can be known, which is, mm. you know, a better way of saying that is that nothing exists or has a nature that can be known, right? Everything mm. has a nature right? It's, I think in philosophical terms, it's called essentialism, but everything has a nature. A man has a male, a male human person has a nature, an intrinsic nature. Likewise, a female human person, they have an intrinsic nature, right? And mm -hmm. the nihilists say, no, nothing has a nature that exists or can be known. We know a thing by its nature, right? I know, I know a cat, by its nature, by the nature of a feline. Cats have a feline nature, right? That means they behave in certain ways. They meow, right? They raise their hair on their back when they get angry kind of thing. And they have claws and they scratch and they meow. That is the nature of a cat. And the nihilists simply say, no, 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 that's not true. Nothing exists mm -hmm. or has a nature that can be known, which is just another way of saying I give up. You know, <laughs> it's too, you know thinking is too hard for me. So yeah. I give up. Now we look at the death of civilizations. You have a whole chapter there on the book uh, about mm -hmm. that. Can you explain yeah. that for us? The characteristics associated with dying or decaying culture, right? The characteristics associated with dying culture. One of them is religion itself becomes an object of laughter, right? It becomes an object of derision. 
in a dying culture because the old ways are no longer practiced. They're replaced with the new ways. The perversion or distortion of traditional forms of religious worship, according to C.S. Lewis, at the end of historical ages, you know, Christianity, you know, is no longer valued for the Christian faith itself. Christianity becomes valued because it becomes a tool of social justice, right? Which is popular right. today. The, the sort of degenerating of traditional religions is characteristic of a society entering its twilight, right? The old gods are no, are no longer worshipped in the way they once were. The Christianity suffered from that, according to C.S. Lewis. I guess the idea here is that as we degenerate Christianity, and degenerate you've defined as having being worse or inferior, deteriorated, degraded. Yeah. You know, in the West, we have this degenerated faith. It becomes the issue of utility. If the religious community is useful somehow for yes. the secular purpose, then that's okay. Yes. But we really don't take the religious part seriously, I guess is the yeah. point, right? If Christianity will produce somehow social justice in a way that conforms with progressive thought, then Christianity will be useful. That's right. good, right? But it's a degenerate form a faith that up to just a few decades ago had been sort of predominant in the West, right? It's right. a degenerate form of religion, yeah. I see it in government policy in my years of work in the nonprofit religious charitable sector. As a lawyer, I've noticed increasingly that the government is interested in the, the secular benefit of the religious manifestation, as it were, in society. Government, for example, different intellectuals and academics are now saying, well, why have we given religion all of these benefits, whether it's charitable receipting ability, you know, to if you donate to a charity, you can get a charitable receipt to use on your income tax. Or why is it we're allowing churches, for example, to have uh, an exemption from property tax in the local community? There was just uh, historically an understanding of the inherent value of religious communities and the discipline and so forth that it created within the community. Yeah. Uh, but now it's more, okay, well, what is the value for that tax credit or that yeah. tax exemption? What is the value that we as society get? Now, there are studies that have showed that there is a, a great amount of value, but but that's now a changing of the emphasis, right? Because it was kind of like, oh yeah, well, it's intuitive. It's part of our culture. We understood sure why religion was important, but now we don't understand. Uh, I think what you're describing there, political philosopher Edmund Burke, he called religious groups, the religious community, he called them little platoons, right? They were right. the trade unions, a local organization, that kind of thing. These little groups and organizations that were the, the foundation family. of a community. Yeah, family. Their foundation of the community, the mm -hmm. pillars, the supports. But you're right, revolutionary nihilism and a sort of weakened, you know, how we view religion today as formerly a special place in the community, right? Mm -hmm. That has been sadly weakened. To what consequence? I'm not quite sure yet, but it has been weakened. Yeah. And like you say, your book, The Age of Nihilism, is more or less diagnostic. It's not prescriptive. Yeah. It doesn't... Yeah 
give, give us the answer to resolving the problem. But as I mentioned earlier, in order to get ourselves out of the hole, we first of all got to realize we're in a hole. I see that our time is gone, but I'm just wondering if you could just share a closing thought. By the way, folks, I, I just want you to know that I am a big fan of Curtis and his writings and these two books that we've been talking about over the last couple of times. Cleo's Bastards is one that I think you'll find very interesting as well as The Age of Nihilism. And I encourage you to find yourselves a copy of these books to be sure to read them and understand the times in which we live. So tell us, Curtis, what would be a final thought that you could share with our listeners? Yeah, this one just hit me. It's from C.S. Lewis. It's from his book, Mere Christianity. Progressives, the nihilists, they're trying to take us in a particular direction, a direction that sort of accords more closely with how they see the world. But I think C.S. Lewis has a great definition of progress. Progress, he writes, means getting nearer the place you want to be. And if you've taken a wrong turning, then going forward does not get you any nearer. And if you are on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. And I think, you know, I can get behind that definition of progress, right? Mm. It doesn't mean a forward motion continuum without stopping. There can be a point where we stop and maybe we can turn it around, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if if somehow some some sort of miracle happens, maybe it could be turned around. I'm not sure how or who would do it. It's a diagnostic book uh, more than anything. There are no uh, 12 rules for life or anything like that. <laughs> anything like that. My attempt yeah. is trying to understand what's going on outside, and you know there there's reasons to be hopeful. You know, one of them is a little bit fatalist. We're exactly where we're supposed to be in our historic development. This is exactly what we're supposed to be living in right now, right? I guess it's exactly where we're supposed to be if we've forgotten yeah. our own history and we have yeah. forgotten those little platoons, as you mentioned, yeah. from yeah. Edmund Burke. And this is what happens. Like, we're seeing it now. Yeah, this is the consequence of living yeah. without the little platoons, right? Without those checks and balances, right? I'm sure your, your listeners and your viewers look outside in the morning and wonder, what new story am I going to hear today? There will come a time when that stops. The revolution can't go on forever, right? Eventually, people, uh, like even after sure. the French Revolution, they uh, came up with the even restoring the monarchy again for a short time. But anyhow, I just find it uh, fascinating. I just thank you again, Curtis, for yeah, I appreciate uh, taking... It, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. And and thank you to our listeners for taking the time and, and listening to our discussion. And again, I encourage you to uh, look Curtis up on the Amazon.com or .ca. The best way would be go, go to my website, uh, okay. www.curtismcmanus.ca. Excellent. I have link for links for both books. I removed the Amazon link because okay. they were doing something about, about six months ago. I took off the Amazon link because they were charging over $30 for these books. And I thought, no, 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 <laughs> no, <laughs> you're not. Because I sort of lose control over pricing when it reaches Amazon. I can't okay. tell them what to charge. So these, both of these books were, were at one point over $30 for the paperback. 
So right. I have a link directly to Friesen Press Publishing. Okay. You can get it there at a reasonable price. Uh, so okay. curtismcmanage.ca uh, has a, all the information that, that you need. Okay, so that's uh, curtismcmanage.ca. And we will have the link below of this video, so you'll be able to find it. And folks, thank you for being with us. And as we point out, you may not agree with the opinions uh, that are expressed by myself or by my guests, but that's okay. Because on Freedom Feature, we're concerned about open, honest, and transparent dialogue. And until next time, I'm Barry Bussey. The fight for freedom consists not only in the legal battles in court, but also in the battle of ideas at the universities and in the media. It takes time, effort, and money to keep on top of the debates for freedom. Your donation allows us to keep fighting for all Canadians. Firstfreedoms.ca